conference, Pre-Wrath, 15 Years and Beyond. I hope you will do so very soon. We're expecting a great crowd and, and a wonderful time of study and fellowship around the Word of God. Join us as Marvin Rosenthal, Roger Best, Alan Kirshner, Pastor Alan Hadidian, who served on the staff of John, John MacArthur for a number of years, and Scott Willis, along with myself. Those who attend the conference will receive the first free copies of my new book, where I offer a biblical and scholarly support for the pre-wrath rapture from Matthew chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 9. This book will settle any lingering doubts about just how biblical the pre-wrath position really is. It's going to be a wonderful time, an exciting time, perhaps the last time that Marv Rosenthal, Roger Best, and myself might be together. We were all instrumental in the initiation and founding of pre-wrath rapture and the ministry that developed out of it. So I'm inviting you to get on board and come along and be a part of a historic and, and significantly important event uh, in the life of the Pre-Wrath Resource Institute. We look forward to seeing you. If you need more information or if you'd like to register, please go to www.prewrathrapture.com. And there you can find more information as well as uh, the registration information you need. Today I want to begin a serious look at any momentism or imminency as defined by those who ascribe to the pre-trib uh, rapture. Chances are you are listening because you are a believer. And by believer, I mean a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, one who, regardless of how frightening the thought might be, is actually looking forward to his return. Like other committed followers of Jesus Christ, you can hardly fathom the possibility that the world as we know it one day will cease to be. Yet you cry, even so, come Lord Jesus. The biblically predicted events that will lead to the true, quote-unquote, new world order are frightening. Worldwide persecution, family betrayals, death, famine, legislated rank evil. However, among some conservative evangelicals, such things are not a matter of ultimate concern. As popularized in the fictional series Left Behind, they believe that suddenly and without warning, God is going to evacuate the church to heaven before these terrible events of the future begin. Many will recognize this view as enemomatism, a belief taught by those who hold to pre-tribulational rapturism. The belief that Jesus will come for the church at any moment brings peace to their hearts and minds. Yet the very fact that they claim Christ as Savior seriously undermines this very notion. In reality, their salvation destroys the notion that Christ could have come at any moment. Now, having read this, or 
having heard me say this, you may have several possible reactions. Anyone who holds to any momentism, you are shocked, dismayed, and swaying in unbelief that anyone could think the Lord's return cannot occur at any moment. After all, that's what you've been taught. On the other hand, you may hold that there are multiple events that signal the Lord's imminent return. Consequently, you may be not in your head in agreement. Or you may have a more fundamental concern like, how can salvation undermine imminency? Regardless of your initial reaction, I hope truth is your ultimate desire and that you want to see just how I arrive at the above stated conclusion. Please keep listening and allow me to make my case. You may be as surprised as I was 10 plus years ago. The reason you may be having a negative reaction about this prospect is that the timing of the Lord's return is one of the most emotionally charged subjects of conservative evangelicalism. Among pre-tribulationalists, the belief that Christ will remove the church from the earth before the tribulation begins, the theory of the any-moment return of Jesus Christ is more than mere table talk. This is no exaggeration of the importance of any moment the any moment return of Christ to pre-tribulationalism. By and large, pre-tribulationalists see no difference between the terms any moment and imminent. However, we argue that there is no sense in which our Lord's return is at any moment. Such a description is a misunderstanding of the biblical data. On the other hand, the term imminent can accurately describe the Lord's return once we understand uh, the correct biblical content of that word. Dr. John F. Walvert, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary and perhaps one of the best-known modern articulators of pre-tribulationalism, states emphatically that any momentism, quote, is the heart of pre-tribulationalism, close quote. Similarly, Dr. Larry V. Crutchfield recognizes the importance of any momentism to the pre-tribulational view when he writes, any momentism, quote, is the key ingredient in pre-tribulationalism, close quote. Therefore, it makes sense that if we show the pre-tribulational theory of any momentism is defective, the pre-trib rapture position would suffer a serious attack. Pre-tribulationalists insist that their theory of any momentism is necessary to maintain a high state of alertness among believers. They say scripture that exhorts holiness and godliness in view of the Lord's return lose their sense of urgency if the rapture cannot occur at any moment. In other words, believers will not pursue godliness and holiness if the threat of the Lord's return is not hanging over their heads. John Walbert writes, quote, the exhortation to look for the glorious appearing of Christ to his own loses its significance if the tribulation must intervene first, 
close quote. That is to say, believers will not appreciate the Lord's return after the tribulation begins in the same way that they will if he returns before the persecution starts. To say that without a threat, believers will not pursue holiness and righteousness and that the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ will not be so glorious if he returns after the persecution starts is troubling. We argue that the threat of the possibility of facing unparalleled persecution that will that uh, will tempt many to abandon the faith is just as purifying as an any moment appearing of Christ. However, there is one difference. Pre-tribulational enemomatism does not have a biblical support. Unparalleled persecution by Satan and his Antichrist does. Now, any sane believer naturally prefers the idea that Christ could return at any moment, snatching away the church to heaven and thereby sidestepping Antichrist's persecution. Who in their right mind wants to go through the worst persecution known to the elect of God, as defined by Matthew chapter 24, verse 21 through 22, and verses 29 through 31? Given the choice, no sane person would vote to experience persecution by such extreme measures as described by Christ to his disciples on the Mount of Olives just days before his death. Nevertheless, let us continue. I describe the pre-tribulational position on imminency as a theory. I chose the term theory deliberately. One possible definition of the term theory is an assumption or guess based on limited knowledge or information. It is our contention that any momentism is just that, a theory in the above stated sense. There is not one explicit reference in the whole Bible that directly states that the pre-tribulationist claim uh, is true. Those passages which are said to imply or infer this conclusion reflect nothing more than inference on the part of its adherents. Yet for some who teach the church's evacuation from the earth prior to the beginning of the unparalleled time of persecution predict, predicted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, a denial of the any moment return of Christ is tantamount to a denial of the faith. To hold to the any moment return of Christ, pre-tribulationalists must teach that after a certain point, after the Lord's ascension, there are no prophetic predictions that must find fulfillment before Christ returns to evacuate the church. Some pre-tribulationists go so far as to insist that there are no prophesied events between the Lord's ascension and his descent. John A. Sproul defines imminency as the belief that Christ can return for his church at any moment and that no predicted events will intervene between that return. Sproul's definition of imminency removes any possibility of compromise. 
that is, his theory of the any moment coming of Christ, cannot tolerate one necessary event prior to the Lord's return. Equally, there are no causes necessary to affect the Lord's return. In simple terms, if the Bible predicts it, it must follow the rapture, according to Sproul's definition. Renald Schauer's definition of pre-tribulational theory of any momentism is similar to Sproul, but attempts to anticipate his critics. He writes, quote, the concept of the imminent coming of Christ is as follows. His next coming is always hanging over our heads. It is constantly ready to befall or overtake us and is always close at hand in the sense that it could happen at any moment. He goes on to say it could happen immediately, but it does not have to. Therefore, other events may happen before Christ's coming but nothing else must take place before it occurs. The necessity of something else taking place first destroys the concept of the imminent coming of Christ. Close quote. Shower's differentiation between may and must is critical. Unlike Sproul, as stated above, Shower's attempts to anticipate his critics there are certain biblically predicted events that the Bible declares will occur. However, these events may or may not occur before the rapture in Shower's thinking. In Shower's own words, quote, the necessity of something else taking place first destroys the pre-tribulational concept of the imminent coming of Christ, close quote. Thus, biblical events may happen but they were not necessary for the rapture to occur, such as the regathering of the nation of Israel in 1948. As was mentioned earlier, conspicuously absent from a defense of the pre-tribulational theory of any momentism is an explicit reference in Scripture. The Bible does not teach an any moment return of Christ, but rather it teaches the right moment return of Christ. Pre-tribbers should proceed with caution given this fact, yet pre-tribbers insist that their brand of eminency lies at the heart of their position. A natural conclusion for their reasoning is this, one temporal divine necessity prior to the Lord's descent destroys the pre-tribulational theory of any momentism. Just one, the outworking of the doctrine of election is one temporal divine necessity which I believe undermines the standard definition of pre-tribulational enemomatism. The doctrine of election is discussed in greater detail later, as you will see. The Bible declares that God placed on the docket of human history before the foundation of the world the election of men and women to salvation. Nothing, including the return of Jesus Christ, can prevent the salvation of one elect individual. Every man, woman, boy, and girl elected to be saved prior to the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ in the clouds 
will experience God's salvation in Jesus Christ. My own personal salvation occurred in 1971. Because I am elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, Jesus Christ's return could not have occurred before my salvation. Therefore, the rapture cannot be an any-moment type of event. Since the doctrine of election is emphatically asserted in Scripture, and since contradictions are inconsistent with the nature and tenor of the Bible, pre-tribulational enemomatism must be an incorrect understanding of the biblical doctrine of imminency. They are mutually exclusive. Therefore, enemomatism faces two giant hurdles. One, a lack of explicit scriptural basis, and second, scriptural contradiction of the doctrine of election. The Apostle Paul makes this clear when he writes, quote, And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. Close, close quote. The salvation of the elect is unalterable. It is important to see that the process began long before our births, and continues long after our deaths. Now I can hear you thinking. You might argue that it's true that God chose before the creation of the world to save certain individuals. However, he has not revealed to us which sinners will come to repentance and be saved, and which ones will not. He knows in advance who the elect are, but we do not. Equally, you insist that it's also true that God has always known the exact date, that is, year, month, and day on which the rapture will take place. The Lord Jesus stated clearly in Matthew 24, 36, But as for that day and hour, no one knows it, not even the angels in heaven, except the Father alone. The Father alone knew the exact day and hour when the Lord would return. This seriously undercuts those who attempt to argue that 2 Peter 3.12b, which states, while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, opens the possibility that believers' hastening activities can make the day and hour of our Lord's return uncertain for God the Father. The idea of believers by prayer, fasting, and supplication could influence God to change the day and hour of the Lord's return is a false understanding of 2 Peter 312 B. The Net Bible states, quote, such a hastening is not an arm twisting of the divine volition, but a response by believers that has been decreed by God. Close quote. However, it is my understanding that God did in fact uh, reveal uh, some information that seriously helps us understand the timing issue and at the same time seriously undercuts pre-tribulational enemomatism or imminency.
God knows when the rapture will take place, but we do not. Thus some pre-tribbers reason that for an omniscient God, all things are certain, but for humans, some things are uncertain. I might need an umbrella today. The economy may improve next year. I may need to set aside more money in case I make it to retirement. God has always known that the rapture would not occur during the first 2,000 years after Christ's birth. But it was only with the passage of time that we humans could come to know that so many centuries would come and go between Christ's ascension and the rapture. The exact date and time of the rapture have been fixed by God, but have not been revealed to man. Since this date and time have been fixed by God, we now know that it could not have taken place in, for example, the year 2000. However, since its date and time have not been revealed to man, we could not have said, for example, in 1990, that the rapture could not take could not take place in the year 2000. Therefore, following this line of reasoning, the rapture has, is, and will always be imminent. How would I answer this objection? While it is true that no mortal earth dweller presently living knows the exact year, month, and day of the rapture, and who the elect is, the Apostle John, long dead, is an exception. He saw the whole host of God's elect gathered in the same place at the same time. Facts related to that event made an imminent rapture impossible for John and his contemporaries, and in my estimation has denied anybody the possibility of adopting this position uh, since. The Apostle John saw and calculated the elect. The Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, after these things I looked and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Close quote. For those who argue that the rapture has always been an any-moment event, Revelation 7-9 destroys it in our opinion. John saw an innumerable saved universal multitude from among humanity gathered around God's throne in heaven. In the context, John's emphasis is twofold. First, election is indicated by the fact that the innumerable number is out of the nations. Election is clear in light of the fact that only some from every people group are in heaven, while the rest remain on or under the earth. John's second emphasis is the sheer number of this great gathering. John declares that he saw 
a great multitude that no one could number. To underscore the size of the multitude, one needs only to read Revelation chapter 9, verse 16, where John makes reference to 20,000 of 10,000, which equates to 200 million. We can only guess how much larger John's multitude is than the Revelation 9.16 reference. Otherwise, why not offer a more appreciable number? So as to underscore his point, John's Greek grammatical construction emphasizes that at no time could anyone human count the number. This extends the limitation past not only John himself, but every man, woman, boy, or girl for all time. Clearly, John means a single individual. John says no man, not no men. The emphasis is clearly on a single individual. Scholars are quick to point out that the connection of Revelation 7-9 with Old Testament promises to Abraham and his descendants is evident. Dr. David E. On states, quote, this innumerable multitude suggests the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, which had two distinct traditional aspects. One, the promise of innumerable descendants, and two, the promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Close quote. Specifically in Genesis, God repeatedly informs Abraham and others that their descendants would outnumber the stars in the heavens, the dust of the earth, and the sand of the sea. Dust, sand, and stars are vast in their number and provide a clear illustration of the innumerability of Abraham's offspring. It is possible that both the innumerability of Abraham's offspring and John's innumerably saved universal multitude are mere hyperbole. The dust, sand, and stars metaphor is clearly used in the Old Testament as hyperbole. Two examples demonstrate that this usage is a possibility. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 22, Moses said to the Israelites, quote, when your ancestors went down to Egypt, they numbered only 70. But now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky, close quote. Similarly, jo Joshua chapter 11 verse 4 describes how a vast army came up to fight against Israel. Joshua described that army to be as numerous as sand on the seashore. However, in reality, on both occasions, the number of individuals represented a number less than two or three million. According to Numbers 146, the results of the first census in Israel after their departure from Egypt Regarding the number of men in Israel 20 years old or older was 603,550. 603, this number does not include the men in the tribe of Levi. Now, depending on one's set of parameters, 
A good guess concerning the number of women and children, including the tribe of Levi, puts the total population of Israel at or near maybe 3 million. Thus, it is clear that when Moses describes the children of Israel as being as numerous as the stars of the sky, he is speaking in hyperbole. On this basis, some would argue that John's innumerable universal saved multitude represents hundreds of thousands or perhaps several million, but certainly not hundreds of millions or billions. However, this objection fails to appreciate the full context of the Old Testament. At the outset, we must not read into the Bible modern concepts of numerical computations. After all, we have ad machines, and they did not. The ways in which the Old and New Testament peoples counted were, were normal, natural, and customary to that day. Therefore, to apply modern means and concepts will expose the Bible to error when in fact the biblical authors worked from the worldview of their day. It is clear that applying modern techniques would result in a different outcome than that reported in the Bible. However, the point of Scripture is not that numbers are finite, but that man's ability to physically count the infinite is finite. In many cases, when the Old Testament uses dust, sand, and stars in a figure of speech indicating comparison, the author intends a finite number. However, on several occasions, the author goes beyond a mere comparison to signify a truly incalculable number. Consider, quote, but you said, I will certainly make your, you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand on the seashore, too numerous to count, close quote. This occurs in Genesis chapter 32, verse 12. Similarly, Hosea chapter 1, verse 10 states, However, in the future, the number of the people of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. The phrase, neither measured nor numbered, goes beyond mere hyperbole. Surely the authors of Scripture intend by these verses a number that is truly incalculable. That said, however, we must define the scriptural intent. Too numerous to count in Genesis 32.12 literally means which cannot be counted because of abundance. Because we understand the Bible to be inerrant and infallible, the word of God, claims of contradictions or errors in scriptures are unacceptable. This belief extends to every area of human concern, including science. What then are we to say to mathematicians who count the possible arrangements of things and who speak of exploding function that could not be written down with the usual exponential notations, even if the entire universe were turned to ink and paper. With the ability to express numbers as high as primo, vagissimo, 
centrillion, that's 10 with 366 zeros behind it. Or try a milli, milli, million. That's 10 with 3 million and 3 zeros behind it. We agree with Martin E. Marty's statement, quote, objects counted cannot match possibilities in vision, close quote. However, there is a difference between mathematical computations on paper and physically counting by hand. If numbers are in fact infinite, and they are, and if the Bible is inerrant and infallible in everything it asserts, and it is, then in what sense can the Bible argue that the stars, dust, and sand are incalculable? David E. Green writes, quote, The most striking characteristic of the stars is their countless number. The fact that the stars cannot be counted makes them an effective point of comparison for an infinite number. Close quote. In what sense does Green mean the stars cannot be counted? We conclude that the incalculability of the stars, sand, and dust refers to human limitations. On the one hand, it is physically impossible for a man or woman to count the individual stars, grains of sand, or the particles of dust. On the other hand, Scripture affirmed that God is able to count the stars. Both Psalms 145 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26 indicate that God has a precise number for the total number of stars. It is not that the stars are infinite in number, but that man is finite in his ability to count them. In the normal, natural, customary way men count, the stars, dust, and sand simply cannot be counted. Neither the stars, nor the sand, or dust can be physically handled in such a way so as to allow them to be counted. To illustrate the matter, let's suppose a person is to receive a billion dollars in one dollar bills. However, to actually take possession of the money, the person must physically count every dollar. How long would it take one person to count a billion dollars in one dollar bills? If one were to count one bill per second, one minute equates to $60. One hour equates to $3,600. If he or she continues to count per this formula, $3,600 per hour times 24 hours would be $86,400 per day. At the end of 365 days or one year, the person would have only counted $31,536,000 if and only if the person counting has not slept 
eaten, showered, or gone to the bathroom. Counting one bill at a time, one bill per second, after five years, he or she would have counted out 157680000 After 10 years, that person would have only counted 315360000 Finally, after 20 years, the individual would be more than halfway there, having counted $630,720,000. It is only after 30 years of not sleeping, not eating, not showering or bathing that the person would have counted $946,080,000. Therefore, for a single person to count $1 billion by counting one bill at a time, one bill per second would require exactly 31 years, 252 days, one hour, 46 minutes, and 40 seconds, plus or minus a day, depending on the number of leap years and what day you started on and in what year. Now, please remember that this formation only works if the person does exactly nothing but count for the entire time which in and of itself is impossible. Thus, we can say that John's, John's reference to a universally saved innumerable multitude, which conjures up a mass of humanity beyond human comprehension, is not mere hyperbole. The number John saw is physically impossible for a single human to physically count by himself. This is John's point. If John is referring to a number of human beings impossible for a single human to physically count, then just how many people are we really talking about? Given John's first century audience, what number of individuals would the average person most likely have conjured up in his or her mind to meet John's criteria? The sand, dust, and stars illustration from the Old Testament make clear that people could conceive of incomprehensible numbers. However, incomprehensible is relative. One's education, background, and familiarity with numbers would make a difference. If we limit the, this discussion to the book of Revelation only, we find two references which could influence our understanding of what John's New Testament audience might have reasoned John's reference to an innumerable, universally saved multitude to look like. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, we are told that John heard the number of the sealed at 144,000. In typical fashion, that number is the product of multiple, in this case, 12,000 times 12 tribes. By indicating these details, the audience was better able to comprehend the total number of sealed individuals. Similarly, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 16, which states the number of mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. Again, we are told that John heard their number and saw the multitude. Equally, we see that 
the number is the product of a multiple, in this case, twice 10,000 times 10,000, or 200 million. Could John's audience conceive in actual term just how many mounted troops 200 million were? At least we know John could conceive of such a number. He heard the number and he saw the multitude. Again, uh, we are told that John heard that number. If we were to limit John's innumerable save universal multitude to 200 million, just for the sake of argument, the next question is rather obvious. How will God accomplish this phenomenal feat of saving more than 200 million people? How will God cause millions and millions of elect individuals to be born? There is no indication in Scripture that God will accomplish it through any other means than the normal natural processes of human birth. This, by necessity, will require a significant amount of time to transpire. Now, some might argue that perhaps more people are going to be saved after the rapture than before, which begs the question. For the number of individuals to be saved that is indicated by John's description of a universally innumerable multitude, those individuals must be alive on the earth. How long did it take for one billion human beings to be alive on the earth at the same time? Most are unaware that this feat was only accomplished in the last 150 years. To obtain such a number of saved individuals require one of two possibilities. One, a long period of human history must transpire. Or two, the largest explosion of births humanly possible will occur. To be sure now, we're not talking about just births, but the birth of elect individuals. While the second option is possible, it is highly unlikely because John is not describing one nation, but large numbers from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The best possible solution is option number one, a long, long period of human history must transpire in order for such a large number of people to be saved. How long, one may ask. Two examples might help at this point. Revelation chapter 20 verse 8 indicates that after 1,000 year reign of Christ upon the earth, Satan having been locked away for those 1,000 years will be released to gather the nations for battle. Revelation chapter 20 verse 8 indicates that their number is like the sand of the sea. Satan's gathered army for his last and most decisive battle is the sum of 900 plus years of people born on the earth. This is an excellent test case for our theory that a significant number of years are necessary to achieve a number as great as the sand of the sea. Scripture indicates that uh, Christ's temporal kingdom will begin with only believers, according to Matthew chapter 25. The sheep and goat judgment. All the goats are gotten rid of and only sheep enter the kingdom 
which are saved people. However, at some point, unbelievers will be born to those original believers. And by the end of the thousand-year kingdom, unbelievers number as the sand of the sea. Since death, disease, and dangers will be limited during the millennial kingdom, and men will live, live long lives, a population explosion will occur. This conforms and comports with Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 and following. While it may be convenient for some to argue that John intends mere hyperbole, the context will hardly allow it. Satan certainly would not come up against the Lord in his camp with an army of a few hundred thousands. The army would have to be of such a number as to have a chance to defeat the Lord. And given the mission, what would be a reasonable number of men in Satan's army? Reality demands millions at least. A second example concerns the circumstances of the Jews leaving Egypt. Exodus chapter 1 verse 5 indicates that 70 individuals journeyed to Egypt with Joseph. 430 years later, God delivered from Egypt more than 600,000 men on foot besides children. All total, the number of individuals approximate several million plus. Given the harsh condition the children of Israel endured in Egypt, such a number is impressive. Does John indicate a temporal limitation concerning the fulfillment of his vision? John states that the universally saved innumerable multitude will come out of the great tribulation. Pre-tribbers recognize this limitation. Their solution is to propose that the universally saved innumerable multitudes are individuals saved after the rapture during the tribulation. However, since the great tribulation is limited to three and a half years, and John indicates that the universally saved innumerable multitude comes up not after the great tribulation, there are two facts we cannot avoid. First, the great multitude arrives in heaven before the great tribulation is completed. Second, the size and composition of the multitude make limiting this event to less than three and a half years tantamount to impossible. How in the world can you have such a huge number of people saved and killed and now in heaven when at the same time the Apostle Paul predicts an apostasy that will involve a great falling away. What rebellion is Paul referring to? On two occasions, Scripture prophesies a future abandonment of the faith. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time, some will depart from the faith. Equally, the Lord Jesus states in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, and then many will fall away. Now, pre-tribbers agree that at some point in the future, in close connection with the Lord's return, there's going to be a great abandonment of the faith by those who profess to follow Christ. Christ places that abandonment in the second half of Daniel's 70th week. 
It is readily apparent one cannot have a universally saved, innumerable multitude continually going to heaven, while at the same time, the greatest abandonment of the faith is occurring on the earth. In other words, those who claim to be Christians are leaving the faith, while those who are not Christians are becoming Christians in mass. All of this occurs during a period on earth described as the worst persecution the elect will ever experience. Only the most naive will believe such nonsense. This is a major contradiction among pre-tribulationalists. Revelation chapter 7 verse 13 reports, Then one of the elders asked me, These dressed in long white robes, who are they and where have they come from? The questions are quite informative. Clearly the elder wanted John to communicate two things, who and where. The first question is easier to explain than the second question. This innumerable universal multitude is the blood-washed elect of God. The answer to the question, where, is a bit confusing. John asks, where have they come from? Yet the elder states, these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation. Is the Great Tribulation a place? Normally, when one asks a where question, one expects a place or location to be the answer. However, the elder answers the where question with a temporal answer. Instead of answering a question with a place, the answer answers the elder answers when. In other words, the elder tells John when the multitude arrives in heaven, but he does not explain the where. Conservative scholars agree that the Great Tribulation is defined in Daniel 12 too, as a time of distress. The multitude will arrive in heaven during the time of distress on the earth. The Greek grammar allows that this multitude appears in heaven as a single group rather than as a group that is trickling in over a period of time. Either way, the matter seems to expose an impossibility. If the number that John saw is a number that is so huge, so big, that a single human cannot physically count them, then that number suggests a number that is huge. And such a number makes an any-moment rapture an absolute impossibility, certainly for the apostles. If John saw such a number, there is absolutely no way that such a number could have been saved in a matter of days or months. It would take years. It would take years and years and years for such a number of people to be saved. They would have to first be born. They would then have to grow to be old enough to accept the Lord as their Savior. And that in and of itself demands a significant length of time, particularly given the fact that during the time of John's writing, the world did not have a population 
that no man could number. In fact, during the first years of our Lord's birth, it is indicated that the Romans uh, did in fact count the people in order to impose taxation on them. People could be counted. The question is, could a single individual count all the people and thus derive at a finite number? It is my contention, ladies and gentlemen, that the doctrine of election that absolutely ensures that every elect person will be saved and the fact that Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and following indicates that a multitude that no man can number will appear in heaven as saved individuals makes an any moment rapture an absolute impossibility, certainly for the apostles, certainly for the first century believers, and for many centuries thereafter until such a number as John saw could in fact be saved. In fact, we now know that Every man, woman, boy, and girl saved for the last 2,000 years are in fact elect. And because they are elect, the rapture certainly could not have happened until they were saved. Now to be sure, no one knows how many elect even individuals there are. But John saw a number, and the number that he saw makes an any moment rapture an impossible. Ability. The rapture cannot occur until every elect individual has in fact trusted the Messiah as their personal sin bearer. And we see in Revelation chapter 7 that that number is so large that it certainly could not have happened in the first three, four, five, six hundred years of the church's history. <laughs>